Welcome to The Long Game. My goal with this show and guests is to learn how to build self-sustaining companies and to explore the ideas, principles, and technology to make it all happen. I hope you learn something and enjoy. Shafin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Elijah. So maybe we just jump straight into the middle and the messy middle, which is building companies. You have quite the experience and not only do you have the experience, I think running a company for nine years, you kind of have seen probably most hurdles, most pain points that every startup goes through in their early years. So why don't you just talk a little bit about open sponsorship, what it is and kind of the inspiration for starting the company in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so open sponsorship, we're a two-sided marketplace. On one side, we have brands as big as a Walmart is a client of ours, as well as um, Finish Line and FanDuel, but all the way down to super small companies, um, startups, D2C, agencies. And then on the other side, we have athletes. A little bit of teams, events, content creators, other types of influencers, but predominantly athletes. And we um, think of us as like LinkedIn meets an Upwork or an Elance. We do all of the connecting and the deal management and payments and all of that. Um, so that's what we do. We've been around, as you kind of mentioned, about nine years now. Um, 20,000 athletes, probably about the same amount of deals, lots of tears and hard work, lots of joys as well. Um, and kind of was born out of my experience as a sports agent, um, where I fell in love with sponsorship as a form of marketing, but thought deal making was very difficult. And you know, it was the era of like we were using just about starting to use like Airbnb and ZocDoc and Uber and all of these companies. And I thought, wait, why does this not exist for us? Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, Two-sided marketplaces can be tricky. Um, there's there's always that natural, you know, chicken and the egg. I need I need deal side as well as supply side to be able to kind of broker that. You did have that experience prior. So I'm sure you're able to kind of parlay and translate some of those relationships in. But how how was your experience in the actual formation starting the company? Was it a lot easier than you expected or a lot more difficult? Uh, and where did your existing network kind of tie in to help jumpstart it? Yeah. Um, I would say we can probably always approach most of these questions a little bit differently because it's almost like we've got the starting, but because we've been doing this quite a while, there's like the second iteration of like learning and pain. And so the starting was easier than most people think. Um, in fact, they didn't actually have many relationships because that was kind of how it all started. Like I was a sports agent between India and England doing cricket and hockey, field hockey and golf and various other sports, then moved to America and suddenly I don't know anyone. Um, and so when we went out to launch, we started with what we call the supply side, the athletes. And in fact, when we first started, I was very agnostic. Um, I wanted teams and events and all the other types of sponsorship deals that I had done. And we got the Dallas Mavericks signed up and the New York Mets and really early on. Now, admittedly, they didn't they weren't paying us anything. So they were just a bit like, of course, this is a big pain point. If you, we don't believe you'll be able to do it, but if you can provide us with a sponsorship deal, with are for it, right? And so our supply side was quite easy. And then once we got to about a thousand, um, maybe a hundred, a thousand, we flipped over to the brand side and we've really never come back to the supply again. So that's always grown organically and that's awesome. Um, the brands are who we charge. And so it's always a little bit harder when, you know, you're charging someone to come in and so um but you know it, it kind of grew and it, we did well and we we did first we only had sales outbound and today we have a lot of inbound as well so it's all growing really well but I think interestingly for us there was something about maybe within the last year I read an article and it was like um you have to constantly look at like 
the need in the market and where you fit into that need. And when we first launched, the need was um, a discovery marketplace for brands to find find and connect with these athletes. And then, because we were doing a bit of an evaluation on like commission structures and growth and all of this. And what we realized is when we first launched, no one on Instagram had like a contact button or put their email in their bio. And that came around maybe in the last like three years. The link tree movement, link in bio, all that good stuff. Yeah, link in bio and the contact button and all of that. And so if you think about it, the second that came about, everyone's desire for discovery went out the window as long as you're ready to do the hard work of like getting email addresses from bios and, you know, you could scrape this down, whatever else. And so suddenly it's like, well, what's the role of the marketplace? And so um, I think like when it comes to two-sided marketplaces, like one of the biggest difficulties, you've got the chicken leg, but everyone talks about that. And I think there's a lot of like writing for the beginning, the origination of companies. I think often what's missing is like the, the, the hard stuff a few years in when you've reached a, a point of critical scale and that, then what are you doing? And so for us, we really had to sit down and think, okay, like our clients don't need us to connect with these people. So what do they need us for discovery? Yeah, to some extent, but there's data tools now. So is it the payment solution and what is your messaging? And so that's just been really interesting for us. It's like, we have all the brands and we have all the supply, but what's our messaging? What's our, what's our ammo for why you would use us to join? And it's different today than it was nine years ago. I think there's a lot of truth in when you're building a company, ultimately what you're trying to do is provide value to some people, some audience, some user. And the value that you might create in day one, or even your hypothesis of what that value you're going to create is, can be very different in year one, year two, year nine, and it and it changes. And, and if you are kind of in touch with your consumers, in touch with the people who are paying you money to do some service, some value, some some product, whatever it is, marketplace, um, then you need to actively listen. And I think that that's something that when I talk to people who are, you know, excited about being an entrepreneur or want to start their new thing or build their tech product or whatever it is, often there's, you know, there is this hypothesis of here's a market, here's a pain point that this consumer, this demographic, this audience has, I'm going to build a thing, that thing will solve that pain and deliver value. But often that hypothesis, whether it's when you're first starting out, or the world shifted and now everyone has their link in bio, that hypothesis and how you create that value needs to adapt. Otherwise, you can kind of just fizzle out and die. Um, how, how do you prime and structure your business to be not afraid of looking for, you know, finding that change, seeing that change, and then, you know, make sure everyone feels comfortable with like, yes, this is who our identity is today, but it might, might not be exactly who our identity or our mission or how we create value in a few years and that's okay. How do you how do you create a culture around that? Yeah. It was definitely harder as well the bigger you get, right? Because um suddenly, you know, when we were really, really small, like it was like, all right, I'm just gonna test something out. I'm gonna create the marketing emails today. Your sales team has resistance, and then like your AM team has resistance, your product team, your everyone. So there's like you said, it's it's a culture within. But I think there's also like um you don't want people to feel like you're not focused or that you're not selling the right thing or that the product, because you are selling a product today with an eye on like the future. Like I'm not saying like we are still today the best place to go to find and connect with the right athlete. And, but what I do know is 
connecting without us as possible when it wasn't nine years ago. Right. We're still the best place, but the need is not as much so that we have to, to so I don't want to talk to my sales team and suddenly be like, don't ever talk about connected need, connecting or the finding is the uh, issue because that is the number one reason why still people come to us today. It's just anyone who's scrappy and small and wants to start emailing a lot of people that they can do it. And so maybe it's more about honing in when you first launch, you kind of look at the whole universe and maybe it's more around like being comfortable with saying, okay, as the world progresses and there's AI and, you know, there's cheaper tools and software tools and more people are learning how to like do scrappy things online with engineering and scraping themselves. Maybe you realize like your universe of brand, your universe is like smaller and smaller, but being comfortable with that. And then it's your choice whether you add on another service to expand or whether you don't. And I think that's the hard thing. Yeah, I'm sure like loads of founders talk about this, like saying no to people, like saying no to clients and not, not taking on everyone. That's the hardest thing, I think. Would you say in your role as founder and CEO, your job is to kind of be forward looking and kind of figure out, okay, this is where we are team, keep executing what you're doing, but I might be kind of throwing some, some, some sticks into the current process and saying, Hey, yes, this is great. This is working right now, but I'm looking ahead. I'm thinking about what's coming next and, and we're going to have to start trying and, and, and it might be uncomfortable to change, but would you say that that's your role or is that just something that you naturally like to do? Or maybe you're, you would say your role is, is defined as, as some other area of focus. Yeah, I actually wish I knew that's a really good question. I, I'd love to hear what my investors think um, of, of that. I, I feel like the worry with being too future focused is do you do you tend to need change because something isn't working today? And is that because you didn't put in the right process today for what you have? So I'm not sure that I think it's always about being future focused. I think that's like, in in essence, I think it's maybe more of like the product manager's job and the product division is to see what's out there and think about product. Whereas actually, I think my role, and you know, I've got a tech co-founder who leads um, more so the product side, although, you know, we work on product together, but he's building and I'm doing the biz dev and marketing and all of that. Whereas I feel like my role is like find something that works and then figure out how to scale it sustainably. And so maybe there are elements there of like learnings that's like, oh, this client churned because of this. Hey, product team, can you guys fix this? Or this client would spend more money if we could do this. But for me, I think my bigger role is to like create sustainable growth, especially in today's economic environment. I think it was like different about three years ago, but like today it's create sustainable growth. And I think there is an eye on the future, but not as a constant primary, because then I think we wouldn't ever have a strong base. Yeah. It's uh, finding the right role and then figuring out how you can deliver, just like you're trying to deliver the most value to your customers, how you can deliver the most value internally to your organization is something that shifts over time it needs to be you need to be reflective of it and you need to yeah it's 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 tough to see i'd, I'd be curious about what your investor would would say too about uh, what your role is um i want to shift a little bit to you know the fact that you've been building this company for nine years is a very impressive feat you're still here you've gone through multiple different economic environments um the priorities for investors the priorities for companies have shifted over that landscape in that period and also if you just look at the statistics it's, you know, 90, 95, 98% of startups fail within the first couple of years. So 
the fact that you are still around is a testament to your leadership, to you and your, your co-founder's leadership. What learnings do you have in kind of year seven, eight, nine that maybe could have helped you get to seven, eight, nine if you talked to an earlier self or maybe, again, another founder who's maybe early on going through this, this massive shift of what we're focused on from a, from a startup environment? Um, what, what advice would you have for an earlier self? Yeah. Um, so it's a really tough question because I could reel off a million things that I would do differently, but if I'd done them differently, maybe we would have like, so for example, I, once we raised our first little bit of money after 500 startups, I think we raised like 1.1, 1.2 mil, but the sports tech industry is quite hard to raise money for, um, especially early on. So, you know, once we raised that, I wish I'd been a bit more aggressive. But having said that, then maybe we wouldn't have made it to 789 because we would have blown through our cash and not had time to do the learnings and whatever else. But of course, like, we've definitely been doing this longer than where I, like, you know, I wish we could have gone faster in some ways. Um, and that element of when you find something that works, like scale it, it's always quite hard to know, like, when have you found something that works? And if you're, especially if you're, I'm not a perfectionist, but I definitely like, um, kind of like to, you know, cross my T's and dot my I's kind of, you know, so like you find something that works and it's like, okay, let me just figure out one more thing, one more thing to, to make sure. And so I don't think we went as fast as we could have done one. Um, second is like, as a founder, you're so close to the customer, especially as a sales CEO. So, you know, I am, I was our first sales person and then I'm the first account manager and I'm the first marketing person. And then, you know, when you, when you raise money and you start hiring people, you start being a slightly more removed, slightly more removed. And I think, um, I wish, I don't know how I would have created it, but like a way to have like maybe a monthly get together with my own customers um, to like learn from them because, and I think we as founders, you, you almost are selling and learning at the same time. Whereas I, my sales team, they're awesome, but they're selling. Right. And my product team is learning, but they're not selling. And so it's a, a skill that is not easily replicable across anyone else in the org. And so I think I, I wish in probably like four, five, six, I had stayed slightly, somehow been close to the customers to anticipate needs versus like waking up and being like, oh, why have they churned? Oh, shit, because of this thing that I hadn't realized earlier. Um, so I think that's a, a big one. Um, I think those are the main two. I mean, there's, as I said, there's like so many things that you do wrong and you're like, oh, I wish I'd known that or I wish I'd known that. And I know that we're still doing them. Like, you know, we have a data analyst, but sometimes I'm like, what? should we not just be using loads of tools and should we use AI to analyze our data and save money on an analyst? Like, I don't really know what the answer is here. So I think it's always really hard because you're like in three years time, I'll be like, Oh, I wish we'd done it differently. But I genuinely don't think we know the answers right now to do them differently. Plus, plus there's the added uh, complexity of life where you can't split test life. So you make your decision, you go forward with your decision, and then that's all the data that you get, right? You don't, you don't know what that alternative path is unless tap into some multiverse uh, at some point in the future. Um, you talked a little bit about building a team. You talked about having a technical co-founder. What does your team look like? How have you, maybe some, some successful instances of bringing in someone from a leadership perspective and also contrast it with maybe bringing in some other people that, that didn't work out or you know, weren't as successful on the leadership side of the organization? Yeah, um, so we are five engineers, five in the engineering team, data, product, ops, and then business side, 
um, like full sales, kind of full account managers, like to just give you a sense of size, marketing, et cetera. So I think about 25 people in, in total. Um, what have I seen? Um, it's really tough because, you you know, there's a bit like salaries are so high in America, especially, right? And so um, most, I think most businesses would do really well if the salaries weren't so high. Now, I obviously I get like, we all want to make more and whatever else, but like you can kill really good companies because they hired the wrong VP of sales at $400,000. Like you have to make a lot of money to like justify that as an ROI. Right. And so and there's a lead time that, of at least a few months to kind of see, did my decision go correctly or not? Is it going to pay off or not? hundred percent. And you know, there's this idea that like some people are great at execution and some people are great at strategy. And then even if you have someone who's good at both, so that's most of your leaders, you need them to be kind of good at both. They also then need to be kind of efficient with their time because there's so much to do in a startup. You know, you can't be like, it's not like IBM where you come in and like coast for a bit. And like, I remember someone that I worked with was like, oh, in my last company, we had two months of training. I'm like, you have like two hours. <laughs> you know, like, I don't have enough to say to you for two months. Um, so I think I, one of the hardest things with like leaders is, is that it's when the cost is so high, the return has to be so high. And I think it, it kind of um, sets a lot of people up for failure. So again, you never know whether you're doing things right or wrong. I feel like we have gone for maybe more like mid-level people and tried to um, see see the opportunity and help them grow versus hiring too senior and then putting so much pressure on them and the business, which again, like great for unit economics, probably hits your growth rates a little bit, but I think is more sustainable. And similar vibe, like it gives you more time to let them grow into the role versus someone coming in that's so, so expensive. And so um, I think for us, like it's been interesting, you know, there are times like at this point in my like, life and, and career that I'm like, oh, I'd be really interesting if I did have like a blank check and I was able to just hire the best of the best that I can find regardless of salary and know how different it feels to what we have right now, which is like, we all have to like help each other a bit more because no one's an absolute expert. Um, but also when you're building something in a new space like sponsorship, you know, it's quite hard. Like, do you hire from an agency, a sponsorship agency with someone with an industry background? Or do you hire from a two-sided marketplace? But then mar mar marketing is quite different. Um, do you hire someone who's like done your transactional kind of but consultative sale? And so we've definitely messed around a lot with like, who's the right kind of background? Because it's not so easy as being like, oh, I'm building the next LinkedIn. Let me go find someone who started at LinkedIn many years ago. Um, and so I think that's also really interesting. Like, what's the profile of person? Um, and I remember like one of my interview questions had been for a senior role that I was hiring for. I was like, these are two different um, personas of people I would hire for this role. Which one would you, if you were giving me advice, which one would you suggest? And hearing how they kind of think through it. Because like, even though I'm hiring at this point, like, I don't really know if you're the best for the, for the job or not. Yeah. I think it's different when you are um, hiring like my tech co-founder hires for an engineer he's done that job he knows exactly what's needed and it's the same for me in sales but when I'm hiring for like a leader in a division I want them to be better than me I don't know all the answers so it's 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 an interesting one
there's there's so many variables that can go into bringing the right person so there's the you know personality fit there's the culture fit there's is this the right role the jd and responsibilities there's are they the too senior not enough senior maybe sometimes it makes sense to go more senior maybe sometimes it makes more sense to you know someone that wants that opportunity to grow into it the other aspect that kind of even even higher than that is well i only have limited dollars right we don't all that blank check i need to deploy them as effectively as i'm able to so who am i going to hire next and it's not always a question of money. Money obviously impacts kind of your constraint of where you can hire, but also attention and time because you have to put a lot of time into finding that person and learning about that role and writing the job description and then doing the interviews and then realizing that that's not quite the right candidate. We need to revise the JD and then go out again. What's been your process for prioritizing what roles to focus on? When do you focus on them? When is it too early to bring that role in? When is it too late to bring that person in? How do you kind of figure out that approach of uh, finding the next most impactful role to fill and then going after it. Yeah. So we created a couple of years ago, like a thing where I'd get together with our leadership and I'd say, um, what are the things that you're doing right now? What's taking up most of your time and what do you not wish, what do you wish you weren't doing? And what we tried to do at that time was, and this was like, we just raised and it was like, we could have hired a lot of different positions. I think we went from like nine people to like 30 quite quick. And it was like, what do we need? And I tried to optimize for like stuff that we didn't want to do ourselves because then inevitably you come to work and you're a bit like, oh, I really don't want to do that. Like no one's really happy. Um, And so you know, for me, like I'm not more of an entrepreneur. So um, I I don't love like the, the administrative side as much as, you know, and so for me hiring like some people in ops was really helpful. Um, and so, you know, for my um, co-founder, obviously the normal engineers, but then we, we hired quite quickly for a QA person. And he just, he's like got more UI UX background and like, that's what he enjoyed. And he was like, I don't really enjoy this bit. So let's go out and hire for it. So I think it's an element of like, what do you need? And what are we already doing? I think the danger is to hire for positions you're not doing. And so, for example, you asked uh, like at the beginning about supply, like supply and demand. We have debated for so many years about hiring an athlete manager, like a community manager for the supply side. And I've always just like not had enough conviction, mostly because I, well, that side's growing anyway, and we don't charge them. And I don't know what KPIs we'd set. How would we judge success? And it always feels like there's a bigger need on the sales team and they can't manage, on the brand side. Um, and maybe I'm making a mistake. I don't know. And so we recently put out JD, and then we still didn't have enough conviction. We're still not sure, like you're saying, you kind of go back and forth. And so I think the trick is, is to like, it feels like it's an important thing that someone's doing, but it's too important for that person or it's taking too much time or they're just not good enough. But it's an important thing. Like, let's not hire for things we're not doing. Like, I think that's a mistake. Finite resources. We have this bottleneck right here. Maybe that's a potential bottleneck in the future, but if it's not right now, then let's not solve that problem until we have that problem. You mentioned about the importance of your time as well, right? So leaderships, uh, leadership roles typically need to have execution capability, strategic capability, both together, and then also the ability to kind of prioritize effectively, manage your time usefully. What have you seen that works well, whether it's for you or the other team members, co-founders that you have? What are kind of maybe some common traps or, 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 or uh, fallacies that people fall into thinking about 
time and prioritization. Yeah. I think the first thing is like the realization that everyone's different. Um, I did this thing recently with my management team where I was like, uh, what's something that like irks you at work? Well, I, you know, I, I can't remember what the question was, but I remember my, my co-founder said that he was like, I hate when I'm pulled into different directions. Um, I don't do well with like just being dropped in something because he's like, it takes me time to get my head around it and understand where I am and whatever else. And I'm like the opposite where I'm like, you know, like, okay, da, da, da. Like I connect the dots really quickly and whatever else. And I just thought like, oh, that's really interesting that we're so different in this like respect when it comes to, um, I think we were talking about Slack usage Mm -hmm. and it was like, what's your irk with Slack? How could we improve Slack communication? And I think he was like, I hate when I get notified all the time by different people asking me things. Whereas like, if you meet someone on the sales side, they're like, ooh, ping, 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 yay, adrenaline, whatever. And so I think, um, I thought like, I think there's this idea that we all are a little bit different. Like, um, how do we use our calendars like all a bit differently? How do we do our follow-up? How do we do our notes and whatever else? And I think there's not like a, a, a one size fits all. I think things that I have found um, are helpful is like when other p- different people share what they're doing and then inevitably something resonates with you. For example, like one of my team told me that, um, or I noticed like she color coordinates her calendar. So like external, internal, and there's just a way that you think about your day when you're like, oh, I've got no external meetings today. That's not a good thing. And then you rephrase how you think about maybe your like time prioritization. So I think like the trick is to ask like kind of you're doing, like what do other people do and how do you, you know, I know some people come into work in the first half an hour, they want to plan out their day. Whereas some people get to work, like open their inbox and they want to get straight into it. And the last hour is like there. So I think there's just like what, what works for you and then what also is your objective um you know if you are a manager and that your leadership role is just managing other people then you need lots of meetings and you need to make sure everyone's happy and your door is open and whatever else like we've had feedback for leaders like oh they're not available between these certain hours so I don't you know and that's not okay if that's your role whereas someone else because you also get IC leaders as well and I think that's a big thing um I think too many people think of like a leadership position as managing and um, I think you can be a great leader as an IC with maybe one or two support systems or in today's world like agencies or freelancers or whatever else um, and really good cross departmental but you don't have to manage people like not everyone not every leader is a great manager yeah and and nor should they be right and and for anyone who doesn't know i see meaning individual contributor so someone who's kind of working directly in the trenches so to speak but you need leadership there as well you are a sales led ceo or i don't know how you particularly phrase it but you said you were your first salesperson and one concept that i i i discovered at some point in the past i think there's a lot of truth to it or at least it resonates with me it's uh y combinator is i think famous for investing maybe a disproportionate amount, or they particularly try to find companies where there are three founders. And they found that if there are three founders, one who is the builder, and that can be tech, it doesn't have to be tech, um, one who is the uh, salesperson, so sales, marketing kind of is able to kind of go out and find business and sell the, the thing that is being built. And the third being uh, someone who makes sure everyone stays out of jail. So that's operations, you know, fulfillment systems, compliance, HR, kind of all the other things that support the function. Um, talk to me about the importance of making sure you're covered in each of those areas, 
But then given your strength or, or maybe one of your strengths is in that sales side, if, if you're looking for someone to be able to fill that seat, if you're looking to level up in your ability to sell, maybe just talk a bit about how you do sales, how you think about sales and, and what goes into a, a competent sales leader. Yeah. Um, okay. So you like to part A, absolutely agree with all of those, which is why, you know, our first ever VP level hire was in that ops role, um, really needed for like fundraising and all, all of that stuff that we um, did. I think interestingly, that role gets um, lesser over time as you hire good HR and finance and whatever else. So it makes sense that as a founder role is, I'd, I'd be interested to hear how YC sees that role. I imagine that's the role that finds it hardest as you scale your company because they become the most irrelevant in a way. Or split up into um, multiple functions and departments type. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then do you really need someone sitting above all of those if you've got good managers in each one? Um, but yeah, I, I definitely agree with those. And I think cross communication between them, especially I suppose we didn't have that ops leader, but like between sales and product and building, that's a huge, like what shouldn't happen is the builders is going out doing their own thing. And then the salesperson's doing their own thing. Like they need to be so collaborative um, from the beginning. So I think that's where we really won um, was I, you know, and before we were remote um, because of COVID, we sat in an office together in New York and there was so much, you know, my co-founder going, oh, interesting that you say that over and over again on sales call. I could build that. Like, why do you do this? And why do you do that? And so um, I think in those early days, like those two, especially co-founders listening to each other is huge. Um, so definitely there. And then, sorry, what was the second part of your question? In terms of just maybe your unique skill set in that sales side, what works well for you? How do you maybe level up in that skill set? Or how do you find that co-founder if if that's not your strength you're the builder but you know that you need maybe someone to to be able to go sell market at lead gen you know it's all kind of under yeah. the same same realm with different flavors um but yeah what what do you look for or what do you uh, think is effective in your skill set in that world yeah i think um so sales has like kind of a few different elements so first you need to get the leads in so that marketing outbound approach um, what does that come down to? Like thinking about messaging, like having a mindset of what is a good subject, like all of these things matter, right? Subject line, content. I'd say the written side of it is is huge. Gener like, of course, with AI now, you can like pump in whatever. But I think like being able to succinctly like talk about your product so that you can get people interested in, in what you have to say um, is huge. The sales call component itself it's great. It's not as important as the pre and post because you just, you need to get them on the phone and then there's a lot of follow-up afterwards. Um, patience, listening. Um, I think a lot of my team are often surprised at how little prep I do for any call. And it's because I listen. And, you know, when people prep over prep, they um, need to get their points across versus, you know, taking something in. And then um, on the back end, then it's like that client management piece, which I think too many startups think about too late. Um, we definitely thought about it a bit late. Like, you know, you're like, oh, I've got a product, I'll sell it and you'll use it, done. And then you're like, oh, wait, you're not using it, what? Like you signed the contract, but you're not logging on, what? Like you've got questions, what do you mean? So um, 
I think the account management piece is huge. And I think a lot of people are realizing how important it is um, for retention, but for increasing LTV, for getting that feedback to feedback into product. Um, and so then that's all about customer relations and, you know, giving a shit afterwards. And so I think um, there's like many elements. Um, if I was giving people advice, this so, the good thing is there's so much out there in terms of like, you can teach yourself sales if you watch like, there's so many podcasts and there's like books and articles and LinkedIn posts and everything. And so I think if you've got someone who's curious and ready to put their ego aside a little bit, like I generally think anyone could do sales. Yeah. I also love how you break it down very linearly, but I think it's a very succinct. There's the getting the meeting, right? Which can take a multiple variety of approaches and those are tactics and you know, there's different flavors and different industries maybe have different, different benefits for one versus the other, but get the meeting. And then show up to the meeting uh, where I, I, I would also recommend that most people listen more. I mean, I think, I think it's maybe trite, and, but there's a reason why it's, it's um, overstated is because when you listen, then you can solve the pain point that the person actually has versus the pain point that you think that they have. Because you have, you know, pre I got I to gotta talk through all my bullet points and these are the main benefits. Well, maybe not to this person, maybe not to this one person that you're talking to. Um, and then again, on the, on the follow-up side of kind of, helping the deal progress, but then also post-close of making sure, you know, that's the beginning of a relationship. That's not the end of closed one, the deals, deals one, yay, it's great. No, that's the beginning of a relationship that in theory you want to cultivate and take care of over time. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, I, I appreciate you breaking that down. To shift gears slightly, uh, talk a bit about the, the world that you are operating in. So specifically with athletes and brands and kind of working with both of those parties would do you find that this is a segment, a marketplace, or, or uh, I guess segment would be the the right term that is ripe for more disruption? They need more technology. They need more startups in there. Or would you say stay away unless you have you know you love the space? Uh, it's actually very complicated. It's more relationship driven. Now, what are your thoughts on that sector overall? Um. Sports is ripe for disruption uh, because it's archaic and um, slow moving. Um, the problem is, is that you've got you've got athletes and then you've got teams and events. So you know, obviously, like sports teams, and then you've got the events like a U.S. Open, and then you've got the leagues. And it's not like starting a recruitment marketplace because you know you're you're in the job you know, um, you're looking for a job, Elijah, like go online, whatever. Here you have to like understand what rights do the teams have? What do the leagues have? Like who's bought what? Well, they're already salaried from someone else. Like is marketing a focus? And so I think there's a lot of nuances around like the relationships within the sporting world that make things a little bit more complicated. Like I've seen a lot of great products um, not take off because the NFL is too powerful um, or agents are too powerful. Like, you know, I remember actually when I launched Open Sponsorship, um, I'm quite a, probably tell like quite a, like a logical, like rational person. And so we launched and I was like, this is going to be amazing. I mean, I'm from the industry. Of course, everyone needs a marketplace for this. And I realized that like, when you launch a B2C, a D2C, B2C company, um, if it's cheaper, it's more effective more user-friendly there's like a few things and people will use it it just becomes a marketing like an acquisition like how big how how big is the market and how 
far can you get your brand out there? Um, but if you've got a superior product that is, you know, people use Uber because it's cheaper and then they use Lyft because it was nicer and, you know, whatever else. Um, when it comes to B2B, there's relationships. And we don't factor that into building in tech, right? We build a product and we're like, great. And then you're like, oh, shit, like your CEO is best mates with the CEO of an agency. So even though they're five times more expensive than us, you're going to keep that relationship. Like, shit, I didn't factor that in. And how do I solve that? And so I just remember when we first launched being like, oh, no, I didn't really. I went, I was like, what do you mean you're not going to use? I was like, of course, this makes sense. And they'd be like, yeah, but what about this? And like, and I was like, I hadn't thought about any of that stuff. And so I think ultimately, um, when it comes down to it, you've you've just, you've kind of got like your hands in it with what, what you can do. And so if you're thinking about starting something, it's like, do you have a little bit of a competitive advantage because you do know someone somewhere that is going to get you your first contract? Um, are you an ex-athlete that's probably going to help be able to raise money? Like, have you got some advantage there? If not, the industry's hard. I mean, there's a few different industries like this, but like sports is very hard because it can be quite insular. Um, and so not to say stay away, but like definitely think about like, you may be like, oh, but this is so rational. And this is so, you know, I, I know there was like this kind of cool product that was about distribution. And I thought the product was actually a good idea, but ESPN has such a hold that if you have a media product and ESPN pays millions and billions of dollars for these rights that you're not going to get in unless you get, you know. And so I think you've just got to think about like the inner workings of the of any industry before you get in. It's a di- bit different in, B, like in, in B2C, as I said, but like you've just got to think about those inner workings. And so, you know, fortunately, I'm really passionate about what we're trying to do. And luckily, we didn't try and go after the top 1%, 5% of athletes. Like our whole pitch was like, you are good at selling LeBron James. You're not good at selling 90% of the rest of your roster. Give those to us. And all the agencies, when we first launched, were like, oh, yeah, we'll give you the others. Like, you know, Untapped because everyone comes to us. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So our business model worked, um, but it could have easily have not worked had we reframed it and gone for the top 5%. No one would have wanted to give us that supply because it's just too precious building a better product does not always guarantee success in fact even even if you do build a better product even if you're in direct to consumer if you don't have the ability to sell or market or educate people about your product or listen to your customers you still might not succeed but uh in other industries where there's more b2b relationships at play i think it's it's definitely uh words of wisdom to think about just what are the other things that are going into this purchasing decision or blocking from buying a better product if you even are a better product? Maybe you're not. Maybe maybe you need to listen to your customers more and realize that pain point you're solving is not actually valuable enough for them to shift some behavior that they currently have. Ishveen, is there anything that you are currently obsessed with, whether it's personally or within open sponsorship? Is there something that you've been focused on and pushing or learning about? Um, what are you or the company currently focused on? Yeah. Um, we realized about a little while back, kept getting this feedback from our clients, like our oh, athletes are not natural content creators. Sometimes their content isn't very good. And 
you know, I've had so many iterations of like what I think a sponsorship deal is. Like when we first launched, I thought I was going to be selling like logos on the side of like sleeves for tennis players, which we have done. Um, And then, you know, fast forward a little bit, like we kind of launched at the same time as influencer marketing as an industry kind of launched. And people kept saying like when we went to raise our first round, they were like influencer marketing. And I'm like, no, sponsorship much better and then like a year later listen to your customers I'm like we are influence marketing within the <laughs> sports world um and so you know like influence marketing meant like social media and that's what we were doing and then I say in the last like year I feel like we are a company that provides content um UGC content made from athletes now you might be like yeah that's obvious that's what influencers do but like the whole framing then becomes okay well what is good content how do you deliver good content um it's no longer about the NFL player who has half a million followers it's about the guy who creates this like super cool content that you can repurpose on your website and whatever else right and so um what is the role of tech within good content How do we even, like, should we have filters? Like, we give you directions and we have this stuff, but, like, what else can we do and how much do we do? And um, is good content, like, should we be producing it for you and whatever else? And so I think it's, like, really, like, this whole content piece is really interesting. The danger is that in two years' time, it will be completely something different. (laughs) So you build all this shit for good content and then suddenly – the world has changed, like we talked about, and that need is gone. But right now, I'm seeing the value. The team loves it. When we produce, like we did a deal recently with a Formula One driver, Alex Albon, and uh, a phone company. And it was, I mean, I think the, the post was the best performing on his whole grid, including his organic. And when you see that and you've like you've helped to facilitate like this production of like good content that people engage with, it's so awesome but how do we do it for every every single time and then how do we move away from saying like this athlete has x many followers and this much engagement to going and that's big part is can we do it through ai this person has good content through what AI? does good What's content that? mean like, uh, no sorry like using ai oh, as AI. in like yes yeah ai yeah sorry <laughs> um so you know I, I think so that's kind of what we're obsessed about and then that comes into roi right um roi used to be engagement how many likes and comments did you get? And today it's like, well, direct to click or sales and all of that. So I'd say those two things are, especially from a product standpoint, like keep me up at night. So if anyone knows the answers or can help, let me know. If given you are in this world, what makes good content in your opinion in late 2023, early 2024? Yeah. It's tough because it's also so reliant on what the platforms are doing so today video because even instagram is pushing reels obviously tiktok was always video youtube is short um some people say funny and that would be great but athletes tend not to be as funny so we can't say that as much um and again like it's quite hard because like some people want it very homegrown and then some people want like the snowboarder where it looks like it's professionally shot. And so I think that is probably one of the hardest things, which is like we're not uniformly, we don't want to tell, we don't want to tell you what's good content. You already probably have an idea when you come to us. We just want to help you find the athletes, the influencers that have the same as what you want. Right. And so um 
some people like a lot of sponsored posts pre and some people want a very clean feed and they want to be the first person that they've ever worked with right so i'd say video for sure um good like the basic level of good like music plus some typography i've heard captions do matter um i should probably have asked my team this a bit more before i I came on but like i believe captions matter quite a bit and like text overlays and things like that really help so um, but again, as I said, it will, I'm sure it'll change again yeah. in two months. Isfine, this was phenomenal. Thank you so much for taking the time to kind of talk through the business, your your process and where you guys are in terms of, you know, where you're going and, and, and how you've gotten here. Uh, if people want to connect with you, learn more about open sponsorship, learn more about you, connect with you, where should they go? Uh, yeah, well, opensponsorship.com, come and check us out. Um, and then you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks, Elijah.